Well, I am thankful for, I think I'm coming through, the opportunity to, to bring the word to us this morning in Earl's absence. Dan's going to be preaching next week, so definitely keep him in your prayers as he prepares for that. So, uh, I was thinking about a last-minute change. Dan suggested the, the house built on the, the rocky foundation or the, the sand. I was thinking, you know, the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked alike. You know, there's a lot of great... Great options, but unfortunately, I didn't pick any of those. I don't have a sermon that, that is a uh, great exposition of a particular topic throughout Scripture or anything along those lines, but what I do have is a passage that I think has a lot to tell us about the Christian walk, particularly how we grow in righteousness, how the Lord calls us to walk uprightly, and, and a little bit of a system for how we can think about what it's like to grow in our walk with the Lord. So this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1. So the book of Philippians is an epistle. It means it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So Paul was in prison at the time of this letter. And so the first chapter, Paul expresses to the Lord his desire for this church. So he expresses a prayer. And so we're going to spend the majority of the time this morning on the prayer, which is verses 9 through 11. But we'll also read verses 1 through 9, where uh, Paul lays a little bit of a foundation for us. But you'll be interested to find what's on Paul's heart for this church. It's not that Paul goes, Lord, help them finally to land the plane on their eschatology. They've just been going around in circles and they just need to figure that out, right? He doesn't say, Lord, help them to... um, finally establish their membership statement. Those are good things, and and theology, depth of theology is important, but what he asks for the Lord to do for them is understandable, it's simple, it's clear, but it is extremely profound and bears us spending some time digging through it. So let's go ahead and turn, if you would, now to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be reading 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is understandable, that it's given to us that we might know you, that we might know sin, we might know our hearts, Lord Jesus and that we might love you and love others. I do pray that as we delve into your word, you would equip me to speak that which is true, that which is right, to rightly handle the word of truth, Lord. Help help this word, Lord, not just to be information to us, but help it to be transformation, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Work in our hearts and our minds to understand this and to apply it to our lives in all the ways that we need it. Thank you, Father. May the Lord bless this time. Amen. 
All right, so what we're going to start with is verse 1. So where Paul basically introduces the letter with who it's directed towards. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. The first thing I want us to think about is who the letter is written to. It's not directed to the anointed and the initiated and the mature. It's directed to everyone in the body of Christ. I think that's significant for us as we consider difficult passages, as we encounter passages that aren't clear, that we should remember that the word is given, the inspired word of God written through Paul is given to everyone, to the mature, to the weak, to the new believers, those who are struggling, those who aren't having a good week. It's given to all of us that we might know God. And so Paul writes this letter to everyone, regardless of their circumstances, and desires that they might be encouraged and challenged and directed in it. So we all should be Bereans as we approach the word. We should not be concerned about whether or not the word is understandable it is to be pursued we all should pursue understanding of the word we'll we'll touch on this a little bit more later um, but i especially appreciate that he includes the overseers and deacons as those who are part of the congregation not just to them not that not the magisterium not the the powers that be but it's given to all so that's the initial foundation that he lays now let's look at verses four and five where he says always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation, right? So Paul says that his every prayer for this church is underscored with joy. <clears throat> Do you think that every prayer that he asked the Lord for this church, everything that he brought to the Lord was roses and wonderful? Um, we have in verse four, Paul, or chapter four, Paul, or, uh, Earl actually mentioned this last week. Iodia and Syntyche are having a debate. This is a these are a, a conflict in the church. These believing women and Paul exhorts the church to help them to live in harmony and peace, that they might um, resolve their differences so that they can serve the Lord. So no doubt, Paul prayed for difficult things for this church, but the, the theme of every prayer was joy. Why? because of their participation in the gospel. So we think about participation. It's the word koinonia, which is partnership, it's fellowship, it's commonality, sharing in. And so Paul is excited about what they're doing in pursuit of the kingdom of God. Now, he could have said, it's really great that you guys have pulled yourselves up by your bootstraps and are finally jumping in with with everything you have. That's really great. Earl mentioned this a few months ago, actually, the Wizard of Oz, the author Frank Baum, who I believe had a Presbyterian background and walked away from the Lord. But uh, one of the one of the sentences that we have in the Wizard of Oz is you have plenty of courage. All you need is confidence in yourself. What he's saying is you have the heart you need. You have the brain you need. You just need to trust it and obey, right? Maybe that's what Paul is getting at when he's talking to the church here. Uh, maybe, maybe they just needed to get it in order, and he's thankful that they've gotten it in order. But again, he's laying a foundation here. What does the Bible say about our hearts and our minds? Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And of the mind, Romans 12.2 Um, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the context for 
those who are, are, are in the flesh is not one of success. We think about Noah in the flood. The Lord saw the wickedness of the earth and decided to judge it and wipe away the wickedness. And within one generation, Ham and Canaan are receiving the judgment of God already. So the, all this is to say that what's true of ourselves naturally is that our hearts are deceitful, our minds are corrupt. And so with that as the context, he gives verse 6, which says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. So the Lord begins the work, the Lord continues the work, the Lord completes the work, and those who are children of God cannot be truly lost. Um, Barnes says in his commentary, it is in God alone, it is not in man in any sense, No reliance is to be placed on man in keeping himself. He is too weak, too changeable, too ready to be led astray, too much disposed to yield to temptation. So in light of the previous verses where Paul is highlighting their participation in the gospel, what Paul is rejoicing in is that the hand of God is at work because God is the worker in them that is producing this fruit. So that's the foundation for Paul's prayer. Paul didn't have to pray anything. He could have simply commanded them to love one another. He could have simply said, this is how you ought to walk now, get it into gear. But instead he goes to the Lord, the one who began the work, the one who will continue the work, the one who will complete the work. So what is Paul's prayer to the God who can help for the church that he loves, understanding that he is coming to the Lord to do what they cannot do on their own. So he begins as we read in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. So let's talk about love to begin with. Maybe this isn't that incredibly tremendous of an ask because I love pizza a whole lot. Pizza is something that it's not hard for me to love because pizza makes me feel good. Pizza satisfies my hunger and delights my taste buds, right? Um, So how do we understand what type of love Paul is talking about? Asking the Lord to do, because clearly this... There's some kinds of love that we think of that aren't all that difficult. Um, the best way that we can understand this is by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. So what kind of love is this? There are four kinds of love that we see in the New Testament that are Greek words used to describe love that we translate as love. In this one, we're looking at the word agape. The most concise description of agape love is in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's go ahead and turn over there. And we'll get an idea of exactly what Paul is asking the Lord to do for this church. And whether or not it's something that uh, is, is real surprising, or maybe that is something that our natural hearts can do. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 13. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, 
they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul is clarifying that the kind of love he's referring to is a kind of love that's patient, that doesn't, doesn't envy, that is not boastful. A kind of love that doesn't find the object of it, its satisfaction. Pizza is good because it makes me feel good and I respond reciprocally to the way that pizza makes me feel. But what we're talking about is a kind of love that has no bearing on how we feel as we walk in that particular type of love, right? Um, so it's very different. John fifteen twelve to 14 says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. You're my friend if I do what I command you. So this is a sacrificial type of love. And the key to this kind of love is that it first occurred in Jesus. He demonstrated that love to us, and now we are commanded to demonstrate that love as well. And so Paul asks the Lord to do this in us this incomprehensible love that is unnatural to a heart that's corrupted and a mind that needs transformation. That kind of love does not come from us in our natural state, so it can only come from the Lord. And yet his prayer is not simply, God, do this supernatural thing. He clarifies. He says um, in verse 9, this I pray that your love may abound, this supernatural amazing love, more and more in real knowledge and discernment. So he's praying that that love might grow through the vehicle of love and discernment. So there's more to it than just love that he's asking for. He's asking for uh, a a full-bodied picture. So um, J.B. Lightfoot, who's a Greek scholar, says the word used here for knowledge, which we'll look at first, is especially the knowledge of God and of Christ as being the perfection of knowledge. This occurs 22 times in the New Testament, and this word is not just book knowledge. It's not just facts. It's far more than that. Um, This kind of knowledge, Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, helps us to kind of apprehend a little bit. Feel free to turn there if you would. There's two types of knowledge, two primary types of knowledge that we see in the New Testament, gnosis and epignosis. Gnosis is the type of knowledge that we receive through information that equips us and that that we build repositories of knowledge, right? Um, Epignosis is more of a soul type knowledge. It's a knowledge that transforms us. So we see in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, um, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints... What is the width and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We see a coming together of these two types of knowledge. We have the the knowledge of the love of Christ, which is a is a head knowledge in effect. But what he asked for is that that you would be filled to all the fullness of God. This is a knowledge that is filling, that's transforming. It's more than just a head knowledge. Let's think about when Jesus uh, was anointed by the sinful woman in Luke 7. Um, Jesus was invited over for dinner to a Pharisee's home, and he attends, and there's a woman who everybody knows is a sinner. They don't associate with her. They see her and immediately uh, acknowledge her for someone they do not want to be affiliated with. And she proceeds to 
to, to basically love Jesus in tremendous ways by cleaning his feet with her tears and her hair. She anoints his feet with costly oil. She faces their scorn and she loves Jesus with everything that she has. What's the, what's the key to that kind of knowledge? Jesus says, her sins, which are many, which have been, have been forgiven for she loved much, but the one who is forgiven much loves forgiven little loves little so this kind of love the kind of love that she showed to jesus required a knowledge required a depth of knowledge um a knowledge of your sin but particularly a knowledge of your savior she knew who jesus truly was and for her that was the natural outflowing of the kind of grace and mercy that she had been shown so that kind of response requires a knowledge Second uh, Peter one two to four says, "Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to love, life, and godliness through true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world." by lust. Do you want to love like this woman did, demonstrating that Jesus was more valuable than any earthly possession? That was extremely valuable perfume that he anoint, she anointed him with. Um, she faced the scorn of those individuals. She could have stayed away. But do you want to have that kind of love that considers Jesus as more valuable than anything on earth? Do you want to have the kind of love like the early church who sacrificially gave to ensure that every need in the body of Christ was met. No one was lacking because of the sacrificial love of the body of Christ there. Do you want to love like Stephen, who spoke of salvation history pointing to Christ while he was stoned to death? This kind of love makes no sense unless we have a correct knowledge of our Savior, a correct knowledge of our sin. This is the kind of knowledge that transforms, and as Earl calls it, love, it responds in love, which is the obedience of faith. So if we truly are depraved sinners with a corrupted heart and mind, and we need a Savior, and if Jesus truly is that Savior who died on the cross for my sins, paying my penalty, then I am free to follow Him. And when these building blocks are in place, as Paul begins to lay them up, the natural outflowing is love. And we'll see more of the natural outflowing that, that Paul is laying the foundation for. So similarly to how we looked at the word love, let's look at knowledge. So knowledge, uh, Matthew Henry says, is not a, a blind love that will recommend us to God, but a love grounded upon knowledge and judgment. We must love God because of his infinite excellence and loveliness and love our brethren because of what we see of the image of God upon them. Strong passions without knowledge and a settled judgment will not make us complete in the will of God and sometimes do more hurt than good. Again, circling back to Paul's prayer and Paul's thankfulness for the body of Christ in Philippi, he sees the work of God in their lives and that causes him to rejoice. He's filled with joy as he sees the Lord working. We ought to be members in the body of Christ who rejoice to see the Lord working in our brothers and sisters around us. That should cause us to delight. So the culmination of knowledge that we're talking about is a knowledge that transforms. Think of the road to Emmaus when we had the, the two disciples who were walking, talking about the goings on, and Jesus meets them. 
They don't know that he's Jesus. He doesn't reveal himself to them, but he walks with them and he shares with them, again, salvation history, maybe even similar to what Stephen shared, but I'm sure in a depth that was tremendous. And how did they respond? Their hearts burned. This is a kind of knowledge that we can't sit still with. This is what, what Paul is asking the Lord to do for them. And the outflowing is, again, hearts that burn. So may it be that our desire to know God and study his word would result in hearts that burn with love for him and for others. So we talked about Paul asking for love and that that love would grow through the vehicle of knowledge and also the vehicle of discernment. So what exactly is he asking for there? So we think of discernment as right judgments, being able to uh, identify what's correct and what's incorrect and, and make judgments. Um, MacArthur calls it the ability to understand, interpret, and apply truth skillfully. Discernment is a cognitive act. It's not something that comes naturally. It's something that requires the Holy Spirit working through his word for us to obtain. And so why is it that, that discernment is a component of this equation? He's making a, an equation for us that results in love. So why is discernment such an important part as well? I think an easy way to answer this would be to think about the opposite of discernment. Um, I would submit that that would be compromise and capitulation. So compromise would be abandoning the truth for something lesser. Capitulation in this context would be accepting the standard of someone else, of another. So what might it look like if a church abandoned discernment for compromise and capitulation? It might look like joining in the woke movement in uh, abandoning the truth of God for uh, that which makes others comfortable but is not the truth. So what would it look like for a church to be discerning um, in the face of uh, a culture that affirms delusional sexual identities? It would mean that God's inerrant word informs us. And it says in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The truth cannot be compromised in love. If we compromise on the truth, it is not the love that Paul is asking the Lord to work in them. We cannot agape love anyone if we compromise the truth. So discernment says we can't cross the line into falsehood. And knowledge, experiential knowledge of God and his loving kindness says that he is a refuge for the needy. It's not that we have discernment alone and that we close the door, but, but that we have a knowledge of our Savior that we have a hope, we have a, a true, lasting satisfaction in Jesus Christ. The deepest desires of our heart can only be satisfied in Him. And it's from that vantage point, with the discernment that's uncompromising, the knowledge of the truth, that our hearts abound in love, that causes us to engage in the lives of those who are lost and needy of our Savior. So love compels us to engage as we have knowledge and discernment. So discernment, working itself out in love, is what compels believers to uncompromisingly affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman. Discernment, working itself out in love, is what compels believers to stand on the unpopular position that women are not to be pastors of a church. And that's where the Southern Baptist Convention finds itself now, making that very unpopular stand. Um, Discernment working itself out in love is what compels believers to go to abortion clinics and plead with young mothers not to murder their children. We cannot compromise the truth of God and still be loving. We must have truth and discernment in order to be truly loving. 
And again, Paul is laying these building blocks in such an elegant way. Every word he places is so carefully considered and strategically assembled for us so that we can truly understand the picture that he's painting. So he goes on to say in verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. So as you walk in this path, as the Lord begins to do this work in you, he asks that the Lord would help the church to approve excellent things. Other translations might use the word discover excellent things or analyze excellent things. The idea is that the knowledge that transforms with the discernment creates in us an irresistible desire for the things of God. And the excellent things here are things that are lasting, things that are eternal, things that matter. So the people of God, as their hearts begin to be awakened through the knowledge and discernment and walking out in love, there's an affection that will grow towards the things of God. So there's two major ways that our hearts begin to respond to what Paul is asking the Lord to do. Firstly, the lies of the world that lurk in the shadows are pulled into the light to be shown for what they are, hollow and weak and incapable of truly satisfying. That's what the woke agenda would have us believe, that we're going to be satisfied if we just embrace this next thing, this next thing, this next thing. They're all shallow. They're all hollow. They will never satisfy. Only the lasting things of God can truly satisfy. The second things that happen, thing that happens is that the beauty of Christ is made to be apparent and once we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, nothing else will truly taste good again in the same way. And that is how the Lord works in the life of a believer to keep the believer ultimately. We look at Psalm 37.4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What we're talking about is not that the Lord will finally allow you to have what you've always wanted, but instead that the Lord will change what you desire to match the excellent things that he has for you. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So in the Lord's mercy, as we grow in knowledge of him, our convictions deepen, our desires begin to match up with God's desires, We see the Lord's kind and merciful gifts for what they truly are as truly satisfying, more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. And we find no good thing withheld through the loving kindness of our great Savior. And again, all of these things feed into love. As we embrace with gratitude what God has done for us, we're filled with the response of love of God and love for others. Paul elaborates even a little bit more clearly on these excellent things in the fourth chapter of Philippians where he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, the loving of excellent things is a love that will draw us nearer to God, not farther from him. So we ought to ask the Lord that we would delight in, approve in, and share in the excellencies of God as a church, not just as individuals, but corporately. He then goes on, and again, we're going to touch on some of this as we uh, look at application, but he goes on to say in verse 10, of course, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So while approving of excellent things relates to our relationship to God, our heart's relationship to God of pursuing the things of God, being sincere and blameless has to do with our interactions with those around us, what our life looks like. 
for example, 1 Corinthians 8.13, Paul says that it's better not to eat meat than it is to make a brother stumble. So as we begin to love the excellent things, as we begin to walk in this, um, the outpouring would be that our lives are not a stumbling block for other believers. So if our satisfaction is from the things of God rather than the things of men, then the things that we long for, the comforts of this world, if we think about the church in Pakistan, the the pain and suffering that they're going through in earthly terms, it wouldn't make any sense. They should compromise. They They should capitulate immediately so that they can stop this suffering. But instead, the things of God are beautiful and precious and more valuable than anything else this world has to offer. Paul learned the secret of being content in all circumstances, and that secret was that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Our comfort and this very life is of no comparison to the glories of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And so again, as an outpouring of our lives, we reflect that to those around us, and we ought to encourage our brothers and sisters. We ought to support them, to build them up, and to be a bulwark of truth, demonstrating our great Savior to them. <clears throat> so as these building blocks, if they're in place, we've established experiential knowledge of God. We have discernment to see what pleases Him. We have a heart that desires for the things that matter. We ought to shine as lights in the world. We ought to be a, a city on a hill. We ought to be a beacon of hope for those who need God. And in the 10th verse at the end, we do see that the eye is towards the day of Christ is to all things being reconciled in Jesus. So the ultimate hope that we have is that one day every tear will be wiped away, every suffering will be put to an end, and we will have eternal joy in Jesus Christ. Um, And that is what we cling to as we seek to walk uprightly and make the Lord look good in all that we do. And the capstone that Paul puts on this is that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. Jesus is the author, the perfecter, the continuer, the completer, and it's his righteousness that allows us to walk in obedience because we've been transformed, we've been made new. And the tone here is as we see in Psalm 63, 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. As we cling to the reality that truly nothing in this world can satisfy us and our great God is ultimately satisfying, as we have these building blocks in place, the decisions that we make and the praise that we express is that our great God is worth our worship. Our decisions will indicate that the glory of Christ is more valuable than life. The goodness of God is put on display, and this is bearing fruit for God that brings him honor and praise. The end of all all these things, ultimately, um, the fruit that we come from Christ acknowledges his work in us. So we ought to have eyes that are scanning, that are watching for the fruit of righteousness in ourselves and in others so that we might call attention to the giver of this great gift, the giver of these beautiful things. So as we think about a little bit of application in this regard, um, where there's a lack of love for others, where we feel ourselves lacking, where we feel like we are not able to, to walk in the way that our proclamation says, let's look at these building blocks. Is there somewhere that I am not 
seeing my sin for what it is? Am I not savoring my Savior for who He is? Am I not walking in obedience the way that I'm called to if I don't have one of these pieces out of out of alignment. So what a blessing it is that we have these building blocks to look at in this passage to consider and ask the Lord for. And asking the Lord is what we ought to be doing. So a question for all of us is, how often do we pray this way? How often do we pray not that the immediate circumstance would be mitigated, but that the Lord would transform in the spirit that he would bring life, that he would bring fullness in our brothers and sisters? How often do we pray for the church corporately as a whole, not just individuals? But of course, we should be praying for individuals as well. Paul is very specific in his prayers. And again, I think this concept of love and knowledge being intertwined should apply intimately in our own lives. As we get to know our brothers and sisters more deeply, then we will have a love for them. And as we love them, we'll desire to know them more deeply. And we're going to know how to be praying for them. Because again, Paul is very specific in his prayer for this particular body. Um, And prayer with knowledge is what is important. And something else that I think stands out is that Paul expresses what he's praying for to this congregation. He doesn't just say, I'm praying for you guys. I hope it's all going to work out and I'll check in in a few months. He says, I am praying that the Lord would do these specific things. I think I'm afraid to say that sometimes because what if God doesn't do those things and my God is made to look bad because he didn't answer his prayer. And I think we should instead turn this around and go, but what if the Lord answers his prayer? And we can point to the excellencies of Jesus. We can point to that in our own hearts and rejoice in our own minds. That's why it's so valuable to have a prayer journal so that we can point to the faithfulness of God and go, amen, thank you, that's my great God. But also with our brothers and sisters, if we share what we're praying for, we can come together and rejoice in our faithful, merciful, and loving God. Now, when it comes to reading the Bible and study, we even, you know, I talked about a second ago about the prayer journal. Do, Do we approach scripture that we might not only grow in gnosis, but epigenosis, right? Is, do, we, do we really want to grow our knowledge of God? Um, or do we want a quick picker-upper so we can get through the day? I know that's, that's me in a lot of ways. Um, so my encouragement to myself and to all of us would be, um, as we approach the Word, if this really is the foundation for life, and if knowledge of God transforms in the ways that Paul is saying that it does, then we ought to take seriously our walk with the Lord and take seriously our desire to know Him better. So if you don't come with a notebook from time to time to the Word, then I encourage you to write the promises of God that you might know the type of, type of things our God has said and what, what He has promised to do for His children. So I definitely would encourage all of us to take seriously our walk. It says in John seventeen three, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We can partake in that now as we know God. We can enjoy the fruits of who he is and the fruits of righteousness that he brings. So build your own repository of truth and knowledge about Jesus. Um, Identify his promises and bring those promises to him in prayer. Now, as we think about how we spend our time, the things that we invest in, in terms of loving excellent things, um, do we use knowledge and discernment to put to death the worldliness in our hearts? Do we decide to put things before our, our eyes and our minds that ultimately cause us to treasure the things of God more or cause us to treasure the things of the world more? Um, and beyond that, 
do our choices cause others to stumble? That's something that we generally read in Scripture and go, that's something we should think about. But how often do we really consider what we're doing? In terms of entertainment, for example, I am very easily engrossed in books, in movies, in computer games, those types of things. But when I'm reading a book that I love, there's a sense in which the world oftentimes, I I like fantasy, fantasy novels. I, I really get into them. There's a sense in which Leaving that book and stepping away from it, the world feels pretty dull and shallow and hollow and the colorless, everything. But that world in my mind from that book, that is amazing. I want to get back to that, right? That's the exact opposite of what entertainment should do. As believers, we ought to make entertainment, as my older brother Chris says, entertainment that makes you excited to live your life, that when you've finished it, you're excited to enter into the fray and to walk uprightly because the allegories that we see in good stories like the Lord of the Rings or Narnia, those are real allegories that are are pictures of the realities of life. And those things get us excited about walking in our daily lives. Everybody has a different threshold for how they think about these things. Everybody has different convictions and different points of stumbling. But these are questions we should ask ourselves. Is what I'm putting before me, is what I'm feeding my mind, my heart, and my soul causing me to treasure Christ more greatly? Or is it causing me to be dull to the things of the Word? Am I dull to the things of God? And maybe that is because I am not pursuing excellent things. Again, a a question for our own heart consideration. As it says in Matthew seven seventeen through 20, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Are your roots laid down in the good soil of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of his word and the discernment that he brings and the the love that he calls us to and the pursuit of excellence that he's put before us and in the the, um, witness that he has called us to? We ought to examine our foundation. May the desire and the prayer of our hearts be that the excellencies of Christ would be manifested in our hearts and magnified in our lives. What a gift it is that we have the scriptures, that we have Paul's prayer given like this, so open, so honest, expressing his desire for the church. We ought to be praying like that. We ought to have our hearts beat for the kingdom of heaven. We ought to have our hearts inclined towards the things of God. We ought to desire that God would make himself known through our church, that he would grow them to be a beacon on a hill, to be a light to the world in a dark place. We have much to be praying for, but much to be grateful for. Again, Paul was grateful because he saw the Lord at work. Though there was, this is the early church, there's a lot of craziness going on. Over at Ephesus, a couple of doors down, there's a lot of things that Paul was praying about that were likely heavy and difficult, and yet he was filled with joy because his great God is at work. So may we pray, may we approach the throne of God, the throne of grace, with great expectant joy, asking him to do wonderful things for his church, for the people of God. Join with me now in prayer, if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that by it we may know you. We thank you that you are a merciful God who can be known, Lord. I pray, God, that you would work in each of our hearts, Lord, that we would desire to cultivate a a 
knowledge, Lord, that is deep and full and rich, that changes our lives, Lord, that that would be the desire of our heart because of the grace that you have begun working in us, Lord, that we would crave discernment, that we would want to know what is right and wrong, and that we would seek to cultivate that diligently, Lord, and that we would make right judgments so that we can truly and fully love, agape love, those around us, those in the body of Christ, those outside the body of Christ, Lord. And as we pursue these things, Lord, may we more and more desire these things, the excellent things of you, God. May the things of this world pale in comparison to the glories of Christ and of the hope that we have in in eternity, Lord. May the things of this world not be satisfying, Lord. And as we taste and see that you are good, may we be a faithful and obedient people. May we look different from the world. And may the world ask about the hope that is within us so that you might be again brought glory and honor and praise. We thank you, Lord. All the glory goes to you, all the praise to you. We thank you for the participation in the gospel here at Coast Community Church and in in churches across the globe. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would beat as your hearts beat for the growth of the body of Christ, the growth of the love, the love that you call us to. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Pray that you would bless us this day and help us to seek you in all these things. Amen.